You know, for three guys, Jose, Joe, Mark, you guys turn out some beautiful sounds. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I am really glad you're here with me this morning, especially if you're new to us, because just a couple weeks ago we started into the book of Luke. So if you don't know the story of Jesus, you can stay with us for the next few months, and by the time we're done, you're going to know everything there ever was to know about Jesus. So please, consider staying with us. Learn about the Lord. We're talking about Him. It's His story for the next several months. It's going to be a blast. Um, next week, I'm going to take a little rabbit trail, and I'm going to give a lesson called Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Angels. So, the lesson's already written, but if there's this burning question you have about angels, send me an email, and if I haven't already considered that in my lesson, maybe I'll work it in. And then the following week, everything you ever wanted to know about demons, but were afraid to ask, I don't know. Everything you want to know about angels, then everything you wanted to know about demons. And again, any questions about that sort of thing, shoot them to me. Because I'm working my sermons, both of them, around the typical questions people have about angels and demons. The reason I'm doing this is, first of all, they're popular and everybody always likes to talk about them. So I want to give you the biblical skinny on them so you know the truth about angels and demons. And also because Jesus is going to be confronting demons throughout his ministry. So I just thought I would take a, a lesson to talk about demons, but I didn't think it was right to talk about them before I talked about angels. So meh. Talk about the angels first, and then we'll get into the demons. So here's where we've been for the last couple weeks. In Luke chapter 1, the miraculous birth of both John the Baptist and Jesus was foretold. And then in chapter 2, Jesus is born, and we saw last week a little bit about his childhood, but there wasn't much. And then we moved on to chapter 3 when all of a sudden he's an adult, he's 30 years old, he's getting baptized, and he's led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then after this, he's going into ministry. And that's where we are. We're in chapter 4, Jesus' first ministry. So this is going to be interesting. We're getting right into the start of what Jesus does and says. I'm in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, there's one, two, three, five words in there that we're going to have to take a couple seconds to look at. He taught in their synagogues. Why doesn't it say churches? Because Jesus was Jewish. And I know you know this, but there's a lot of people that don't know this. Steve, back in the old days, people didn't know that. Everybody knows that now. So I think it was about four years ago, my first trip to Israel that I led, I'm chit-chatting with a couple of bus drivers, just having a good old time talking. And he told me about, I asked him, I said, which tours have the nicest people? It definitely wasn't Americans. I didn't expect it to be Americans. He said, the people from Latin America... They're the kindest, the most gracious. They're the nicest tours. But then he said, but you'll never believe what? What? I had a group of Catholics from Latin America, and I'm touring the country of Israel with them. They didn't know Jesus was Jewish. What? Do they not know where they got on their plane from and to? They're looking at all the holy sites where Jesus did this, that, in the land of Israel. And they didn't know Jesus was Jewish. Blow my mind. 
This wasn't like in the 1500s. This was a couple years ago. So when I emphasize these words he taught in their synagogues, I realize, you know what, maybe I ought to tell people, hey, Jesus is Jewish. Yeah, but Steve, what does it matter? It matters a lot because God has this plan for working with the nations, and this plan revolves around Israel. And with all the Israel hate going on right now, and all the anti-Semitism going on right now, it's important that we get biblically grounded and see God's perspective on things. Let me tell you something. You don't want to be messing with Jesus' cousins. Right? He's coming back, and he ain't going to be happy when people are messing with his people. So he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. When, the, when I share this story with you about the um, bus driver, I thought, well, that can't be the only thing that's going on out there. So I just jumped on the Internet, and I plugged in the words, is Jesus Jewish, or do people don't know Jesus is Jewish? And this article popped up from Biblical Archaeology Society. Now, that's a, a website I go to often. Here's the title of the article, Discovering the Jewish Jesus. Well, that's great. Is there another one to discover? <laughs> and then the first four words was Jesus a Jew? Question mark. Now, why in the world is there an article like this? Because these guys know it needs to be. They know there's people that still don't know. And so they took this approach. Some people claim that Jesus was a Christian. Some have claimed that he was an Aryan Christian. In seeking to emphasize the uniqueness of Jesus, traditions have distanced Jesus from the cultural setting of his day, whether that be his Jewish roots or the larger Greco-Roman world. In the 19th century, German theologians emphasized this distance. Well, that's a very nice way of putting it. In seeking to emphasize the uniqueness of Jesus. Let me give you the truth of the matter. And they take us back to German theologians in the 19th century. Let's go back to the 300s, when the Council of Nicaea met, the first big so-called Christian council. And all these pastors were invited, but any Jewish pastors. If you were a Jewish pastor, you were not invited. There was not one Jewish pastor there. Here's some of the things that were said at the Council of Nicaea. Quote, Let us have nothing to do with the abominable traditions of the Jews. End quote. So they took the day of worship and made sure it was on Sunday and not on Saturday because the Jewish people worshipped on Saturday. That's the Jewish Sabbath. So we're just going to worship on Sunday, they said. Then they took Passover and they said, we cannot worship and honor the Lord's resurrection during the Jewish feast of Passover because it's too close to things Jewish. Let's make it on a separate calendar so that the two never coincide and we'll call it Easter instead of Passover. No, it wasn't like because Jesus was so unique, let's separate him from his culture. It's like, no, back in the beginning there were a bunch of anti-Semitic pigs and they want to have anything to do with his history and his people. So they intentionally separated Jesus from the culture. And now these people, I'm not saying these Catholics who didn't know Jesus was Jewish were anti-Semites. I'm not saying that at all. They were ignorant. They didn't know because their priests didn't teach them and their priests before them didn't teach them and their seminary didn't teach them until you get back far enough where they taught them on purpose that he wasn't because they hated Jews. The thing is, you can't pick up the Bible and read it and not know these things. So the fact that they didn't know he was Jewish to me means they had never read the Bible. He went 
into the synagogue and he taught. And it's almost as if Luke knew this was going to happen. Because listen to what he says. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Of course it was his custom. He was a faithful Jew. He went into the synagogue every Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. Okay, so this is Jesus' first sermon. He entered his ministry, was just baptized, went off, was tested by the devil. Now he's back and he's preaching his first sermon. And let me tell you, it starts off really good. That is, the people love to hear what he has to say. But then it ends with a, ends with a bang. Not so good. So let me share with you the first part, then we'll jump into the second part. And I like what Pastor Michael said. I think it was Facebook or Twitter or something. He said, come and listen to the sermon. Jesus' ministry starts with a bang and almost ends with an assassination. Michael, I think we need to retitle it. I like that one much better. Yeah. So we're going to start with a bang and then see what happens. So he, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, back then, as you know, they didn't have books. They had scrolls. And different synagogues would have had different scrolls because not all synagogues could afford to have all the scrolls of the Bible. But maybe his did. I don't know. But I want to show you somewhat of what the scroll might have looked like. Now, this is an itty-bitty scroll, but his might have been this size because it was only perhaps Isaiah, though there might have been several prophets put together. But chances are, by the way, this is a pointer. If you were up close, you'd see a hand pointing because they would never want to touch the scroll with their finger because these things lasted hundreds of years and you wouldn't want to get the oils of your finger on the scroll. And so they would have little pointers. Now, I don't know how far back this tradition goes. But here, this scroll has a nice little cover on it, which I'm going to take off. And then the scroll would have looked something like this. Probably not this white, but some of them were painted or dyed to look very white. Some of them were more animal skin looking. And I'm sure he was very accustomed to handling this, and he probably... I mean, how do, you find the, how do you find your place in here? There's no chapters or verses. You just got to look and roll and know where it's at. When my children had their bar mitzvahs, you know, it was a week or two ahead of time. I had to get this scroll out and try to find the spot. It's not easy. It was annoying. I hated doing it because I'm not that fluent in Hebrew. So finding the spot was not that easy for me to do. But I did do it. I'm going to leave this with you if you don't mind. Thank you. So he unrolls the scroll and he reads again, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Why? Why were the eyes of everyone fastened on him? So he stands up to read, and then he goes to sit down, and they're looking at him. What's so... This happens every Saturday. What's got their attention? I'm not sure. Maybe the presence of the Holy Spirit was just thick. 
Maybe it's because Jesus ended the reading before the verse ended, which he did. And they're like, well, what do you do that for? What's he going to say now? Or maybe he, rang, he read the wrong portion. Throughout much of Jewish history, there's a schedule of what you're supposed to read on any given Saturday. Maybe he didn't read the right portion. I don't know. I just know that the scripture says, the eyes of everyone were fastened on him. As though the moment was tense. Not necessarily in a bad way. They're just anticipating what he had to say next. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now, this is a good sermon. Every pastor wants to hear that, huh? Eyes fastened on him. Everybody was amazed at the gracious words dripping from his lips. This is a good sermon. It's going over well. I mean, look what he has to say. Good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Releasing the oppressed. Proclaiming the day of the Lord's favor. This is a good sermon because it's fulfilled. Woohoo! Good news. Oh, but how the tide turns. Oh, prophets had two responsibilities, sometimes more, but when they preached, they had two responsibilities. They had to give hope, give good news, like Jesus just did. But there's another side. They also had to give bad news. They had to tell people about their sin and what God was unhappy with and demand that they repent. So a good prophet was very good at giving hope, and he was very good at condemning people so that they could see their need for deliverance. Guess where part B goes with the sermon? You know it. But before we go there into Jesus' sermon, I want to talk to you about good news and bad news. You know, when prophets give good news, everybody loves them, and when they give bad news, a lot of people hate them. But the Bible encourages us in many places to keep our ears open to truth, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Listen, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Very famous verse. I kind of paraphrased it. Let me read my paraphrase of it. It's better to have a friend that'll tell you like it is to your face than a friend who says they love you, but you never see it. A friend will hurt you to help you. An enemy will kiss you to betray you. Hmm, there's a famous guy that did that in the Bible. Jesus was betrayed by a kiss from Judas Iscariot. Said he loved him. No. We should be lovers of the truth, not just lovers of comfort. The Bible urges us to open our ears. I love this saying. I'll get it wrong, but the concept is there. God gave us two ears and one mouth so we could speak half as often as we listen or listen twice as much as we speak. I love that. I'm going to do it someday. I'm going to be that guy who doesn't talk too much and listens more. I'm working on it. Jesus' brother said this. Remember this, my dear friends. Everyone must be quick to listen, but slow to speak. And slow to become angry. Has anybody ever got angry with you before they heard the whole story? And then after they heard the whole story, they weren't angry with you anymore? Let me see your hands. Yeah, because we're not quick to listen. We're quick to anger. 
Now, let's be fair. How many of you have done the same to somebody else? Yeah. Let's not do that anymore. Let's just be calm, cool our jets, listen to the whole story, then get mad. <laughs> so there was this young pastor, and his mentor came up to him and said, Listen, son, when you're a pastor, you're going to have a couple of responsibilities. You've got to preach the Word of God in its fullness. Sometimes it's going to be good news, and sometimes it's going to be bad news. But do not hesitate to give people the bad news. You're responsible for doing it. The mentor was Paul, the apostle. The young pastor was Timothy. Let me read to you what he told him in his letter. This comes from 2 Timothy. Listen. When Christ Jesus comes as king, he will be the judge of everyone, whether they're living or dead. So with God and Christ as witnesses, I command you to preach God's message. Do it willingly, even if it isn't the popular thing to do. You must correct people and point out their sins, but also cheer them up. And when you instruct them, always be patient. Be patient. Quick to hear, slow to speak. Point out their sins, you must, but also cheer them up, both sides. Then he said, the time is coming when people won't listen to good teaching. Instead, they'll look for teachers who will please them by telling them only what they're itching to hear. And I believe those days are upon us. Not fully, it's going to get worse. But there's whole religions, big popular religions, who say things like this. There's no such thing as hell. Really? You know, we don't think enough. I'm just telling you we don't. There's no such thing as hell? Well, who made it up? Where did that word come from? How do we even know of such a thing? Oh, that's a good question, Steve. I'll tell you where we know of such a thing. The same place that tells us about heaven. The Bible. We know about hell because of the Bible. And we know about heaven because of the Bible. So if you say there's no such thing as hell, you have to say there's no such thing as heaven too. So these religions tell people there's no such thing as hell. I'm sure they're happy to hear that. Now they know there's no way they can possibly go there. That's good news. Unless it's a lie, and you can go there, and somebody's telling you you can't, so you don't worry about it, and you die and you go there. Now you're really mad. <laughs> Too late. People want to hear what they want to hear. But God tells his pastors, don't be that way. Tell them the truth. So I'm going to tell you some truth. There is a hell, and some of you will go there. But none of you have to go there. Not one of you. The choice is yours. Wow, what a responsibility we have. It's more than our lives are in our hands, which they are. Our souls are in our hands. They are. You know, our lives are in our hands. And so some of us choose not to do things that are dangerous or risky because we don't want to die and we don't want to risk dying. And some of us do more risky things and we think they're nuts. It's a matter of degree. Well, your soul is in your hands too. How risky do you want to be with your soul? Teachers who please people by telling them only what they want to hear. Jesus wasn't that way. He told people what they needed to hear. And so they got mad at him. And that brings us to the second part of his sermon. Verse 25. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. 
when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So there was a famine, a drought for three and a half years. A lot of widows, a lot of needy people. The huge major prophet who could do miracles went to one widow and one widow only. Verse 27, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now here's where it gets interesting. Verse 28, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. What just happened? One verse they love him, the next verse they hate him. And what I just read to you, is there any reason in there that you can understand why all of a sudden they hate him? It went from, they love the words dripping from his lips, to kill him! These people were wackadoodle. I mean, they went from overjoyed to over evil in like one verse. What happened? Why? Let me tell you what happened. First of all, Elijah was a prophet in Israel, one of the most famous prophets ever, right next to Moses, the guy who did the most miracles, showed the most power. He was famous. He had a showdown. All the prophets of Baal met him up on Mount Carmel for a showdown of the gods. He said, my God's real, yours isn't. Let's prove it right now. So all these prophets built an altar and sacrificed a cow on it. And they all danced around, praying that their God would send fire down to consume their sacrifice. And Elijah, the whole time, is mocking them. Well, maybe he can't hear you. Chant louder. Says, well, he still hasn't sent down his fire. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Give it a few minutes. Yeah, he was mocking them. And he gave them all day for their God to answer by fire. He said, okay, okay, my turn. Now, their God, by the way, was Baal, God of lightning, and they're on top of a mountain. This would have been really easy for Baal to do something if he was real. Spark a little flame with some lightning after a three-and-a-half-year drought, prove your God is superior. Nada. So Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. I want you to take my altar and just drench it with water. In fact, build a moat around it and fill it with water. He said, okay, now it's, after the water's there, he says, now it's my time. God, <laughs> fire came down from heaven, even sucked, licked up the water. Now, fire doesn't burn up water. Water puts out fire. Not when it's God's fire. God wanted to make a point, and boy, did he make it. Can you imagine how freaked out everybody was? Except for Elijah. So, any questions? <laughs> we now know who God is. He said, okay, now kill all the false prophets of Baal. Sure enough, they did. And then Elijah ran. This is the Elijah I'm talking about. And then it says, he went to Sidon to minister to a widow in Zarephath. Here's what you may not know about Sidon. That's the capital of Baal worship. Jezebel, who was his archenemy, the one he fled from after the mountain, is from Sidon. So why would a prophet of Israel ignore all the widows in Israel and go to Baal country and save a pagan woman. Not only were they idolaters, but they were Israel's enemies. And he didn't stop there. He said, and then his mentee, Elisha, did something the same. There was this Syrian general 
The Syrians were the enemies of Israel, and they had more power at this point in history. And the king of Syria sent a letter to the king of Israel and said, my general has leprosy. I understand uh, you guys got a prophet. Heal him. And the king of Israel said, great, he's just trying to start a war because nobody can heal leprosy. And one of the people in the palace said, no, no, we have a prophet that can do this. Don't worry about it. Send him to Elijah. So he went to uh, Elisha. So he went to Elisha, and Elisha didn't even get off his you know, desk to talk to him. He sent out his servant and said, just go tell him to dip in the Jordan seven times. He'll be fine. Well, the general was ticked. He said, dip in the... We got better rivers in Syria. I'm out of here. And his servant said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You came all this way to be healed of your leprosy. If he had asked you to do some great and amazing thing, you'd have done it. He just said, go in the water seven times. What do you got to lose? Try it. All right. So he goes into the water seven times, the Jordan River, and he comes out with no leprosy. Whoa! How awesome is that? This was the general of the Assyrian army that were the enemies of Israel. So, the pagan woman and the Syrian general are ministered to by the prophets and not the Jews. And this really angered the synagogue people. Why? He was just telling them a true story that from years ago. Because there's some implications in what he was saying. Let me share with you the implications. It's easier to find people of faith in a pagan foreign country than right here in Israel. He was dissing his own people. He wasn't dissing, he was telling them the truth. But they didn't want to hear it because it hurt. It was, it was heavy. And the implication, just as in the days of those prophets, you people in Nazareth are just as bad. That's what he was saying. And they were mad at him for saying it. So much so that they were going to kill him. Pick him up and throw him right off a cliff. By the way, when we do our Israel trip, we usually drive by that cliff. We say, hey, there's the cliff they were going to throw Jesus off of. Horrible days. But see, Jesus wasn't hurt. Why? Well, if you're last week, if you were here last week, I read you a passage from the Psalms that says God will give his angels charge over him to protect him so he doesn't dash his foot up against a stone. Satan used that as a temptation in the wilderness, told him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, remember? He wasn't supposed to test the Lord his God, but here was an occasion where his life was at risk for real, and he was delivered. It wasn't his time to die. Nobody could kill him. He could have dropped a nuke on his head and it wouldn't have hurt him. It was not his time to go. So let me ask you, if Jesus was here today, what do you think he'd say? I know he'd say some nice things, but what do you think the harsh things would be that he would say? Now, we're not an unbelieving group of people here. So I'm not saying to us, though he was in a synagogue, we are in a church, maybe we're not so dandy as we think we are, like they thought they were. Maybe he'd have some hard things to say to us too. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Maybe you don't even know the Lord. Maybe you've not made a full-blown commitment to follow him. And I would way encourage you to do that. Let him save you. He died to save you. He's dying to save you. Let him save you. Repent of your sins. Tell God you're sorry and that you're going to follow Jesus. But if you're looking for God, I've got to ask you a question. Because 
I think it's, it's extremely important. Are you willing to hear what he has to say, even if you don't like it? Let's say Jesus came today, just for, for, as an example. He got up on TV and said, got up on TV and he said, all right, you're a great country. You've sent out missionaries all over the world. You've built hospitals. You feed the hungry. You protect citizens of other countries who have despotic rulers. You do great things. You have freedom of religion. We're all going, yeah, proud to be an American. But a few years ago, you said it was okay to kill babies before they were born. And you made it a law to do it. You took prayer out of schools. And now you're telling gay people that marriage is okay for them as a matter of law. When I said it's not. You think he'd get the warm and fuzzy welcome? Oh, he's not open-minded. He's a hater. He's a homophobe. He doesn't believe in the right to choice. He's antiquated. He's a chauvinist pig. He's old-fashioned. How would he be treated today? I think we all know. But for us, it's just you and him. You have to decide whether you want to follow him and accept him as your Lord or not. Good news and bad news. Good news, Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. Any sin you've ever committed can be forgiven and will be forgiven if you will repent. That means reject sin and follow Jesus with all your heart and life. And you will go to heaven forever. That is good news. Here's the bad news. If you don't do that, if you don't reject your sin and you don't embrace the Savior, you will die and go to hell forever. Both are true. Nobody has to go to hell. Jesus died for everybody, but you have to choose. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for giving us the truth, even when at times it's hard to hear. Give us the patience of Job to be able to hear the truth when we need to. Quick to hear, slow to speak. And I pray for my friends and my family, Lord, even some listening to this message who may have not yet made a decision to follow you, that they would do so, that you would touch their hearts, show them the truth of these words, that they would become followers of Jesus and they would be saved from their sins. And then that they could take the message to their friends and families and get them saved. And we could all go to heaven together. Open our hearts, open our eyes, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.